Would you please open your Bibles to Philippians? Philippians chapter 3. You're going to be reading verses 17 through 21. 17 through 21. And if you are able, please stand. Here's the word of the Lord. Brothers, join imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in shame. And their mindset is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before You with very thankful hearts that we can call You Abba. Thank You for adopting us through Jesus, our Savior. Thank You for rescuing us. And as children, we come to You and we ask You to feed us Give us Your food. Give us Your Word. And You tell us that we who are evil are able to give good gifts to our children. We don't give rocks and stones and serpents and snakes when they're hungry. How much more You? So please help us. All week long, We hear, we listen to all sorts of news. People giving their side of the truth, what they believe to be truth. But we know that you alone have the truth and you alone have good news. So we beg you, speak to us. Help me to be a faithful slave. Help me just to unleash your word. Help me just to release the truth. And I pray that the congregation, this beloved congregation, would be faithful in listening. We both have responsibilities, and both of us, the congregation myself, we need your help. So help us. We pray for those who are sick today, those who are not able to be at church. We pray you'll be visiting them with healing, restoring, giving them joy, draw them to you. Help us as a church to be checking on those who are sick, serving them. Pray for other churches in Salem. Build up your people, Lord. Feed your flock today. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
in his work, the Antichrist, Frederick Nietzsche, or as some say, Frederick Nietzsche, he mocks Christianity. And one of the things that Nietzsche mocks Christ is in relation to Christ being a hero. He says that Christ could never be a hero. So Frederick Nietzsche, he writes, If there is anything essentially unevangelical, it is surely the concept of the hero, one who conquers, one who performs victory against enemies. That's the idea of a hero. What the Gospels make instinctive is precisely the reverse of all heroic struggle, of all taste for conflict, the very incapacity for resistance is here converted into something moral. He goes on to say, Oh, the blessedness of peace that Christians so much endorse and adore, of gentleness. And then here, so he ends the, the inability, the inability to be an enemy. Frederick Nietzsche, he's actually mocking Christianity when he says that Christians, Christianity is unable to have enemies. And while Nietzsche is mocking, the great majority of the liberal theologians actually endorse it as a virtue of Christianity. One scholar says, liberal theology means many things, but one of its central themes is the denial of enmity. And especially the denial that God has enemies. And brothers and sisters, if you listen to most of the popular Christian speakers in our day, and if you listen to most of the songs sung in churches and in the Christian radio station, you would see the, the professing conservative Christianity in America, Nietzsche, and the liberal theologians, they all agree, they're all in harmony in proclaiming that Christianity has no enemies. The inability to have enemies. But the truth is that if you remove the language of war, warfare, enmity, enmity enemies from the Bible, the story makes no sense at all. The Dictionary of Biblical Imagery writes, If we were to extract the enemies from all the Bible's narratives, prophecies, psalms, proverbs, gospels, and letters, the text, the Bible, would be riddled with gaps, and the story would be reduced to nonsense. Enemies are a problem for which God has the solution. And the solution is displayed on the cross of Christ. The cross is the most gruesome, most violent battlefield in the history of mankind. And what's amazing about the cross is that at the cross, you have this paradox of ending enmity and starting enmity. So for Christians, our enmity... The hate and the hostility towards God ends at the cross. And at the same time, there is a new hate. With the kingdom of darkness rising right there. 
So we must be aware, we must be watchful about this truth. Think about Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam fell because he failed to recognize that there was an enemy within, inside the camp, inside the garden. Enmity arises before the fall, and Adam's sin can be seen as his inability to recognize an enemy, or more accurately, accurately, his refusal to be an enemy. He should have come across and crushed the serpent's head right there. That was the role of Adam. There was an enemy inside the garden, inside the camp, and instead he refused to be an enemy to the serpent. And the church's lack of grasp about this vital truth has been full display. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, we see people who profess to be Christians and they live in the ease, in the comfort, not realizing that there is a war going on. I think we should take heed of Paul's words in Ephesians 6. Here's the command of the Lord to the church. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And sadly... Most Christians look at this passage and they just think about kids' vacation Bible study or children's Bible class. And then you have to draw and color the armor of God. So we come to Ephesians 6 and oftentimes we think that's just for little kids. Yes, an army, the soldier. Great, how can we color that? And people dying spiritually. Or failing to realize the reality of the war that's taking place. So, Philippians chapter 3, where we are, we have been seeing throughout the whole letter to the Philippians is Paul's call to this church in Philippi to march together. They are in a campaign to advance the gospel, they have enemies. And that's what Paul is reminding the church in Philippi, and he's reminding us today. The context of the text where we are, you remember chapter 3, verse 2. Beware of whom? The dogs. Implying that they have enemies. The mutilators. Beware, watch out for these people. And now Paul is going to expand even more the, the theme of enemies. And he sees a large troop of enemies of the cross coming into the gates of the church in Philippi, and as a, a veteran, as an experienced soldier, he's warning and helping that church to withstand and fight in the right manner. So, here's the outline, very simple. We have the friends of the cross in verse 17, and then we have the enemies of the cross, verses 18 through 19. So, the friends of the cross, verse 17, and then the enemies of the cross. Well, let's go to verse 17. Brothers, brothers, and every time I read and I see Paul 
calling the Gentiles brothers. I'm overwhelmed by the grace of God in our lives. Don't ever overlook brothers. Do you remember who Paul is? Remember the preceding verses. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Zealous. Hating the Gentiles. And now he embraces all of them. He has his arms wide open. Embracing the whole church. A church filled with Gentiles. And he calls them brothers and sisters. Because through the cross now, they have been joined together. They are all part of the same kingdom. They have one Father, and they have been bought with the same blood. So Paul calls all of them brothers. Beautiful. And then he says, join in imitating me, mimicking me. And that's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. The Christian life is all about listening and watching and doing. You listen and you watch and you do it. That's the Christian life. You listen to the preaching of God's Word and you're watching those more mature, how they apply the Word in their lives so you can do the same. One scholar makes a very important observation here because some people will argue that Paul is being arrogant. And any Christian who would call any other Christian to follow him and imitate him is an arrogant person. So this scholar writes, As with any complex practice, we can only hope to acquire these skills, disciplines, and habits to the extent that we submit ourselves to the example of those more advanced in the practice. So any job you get, you're going to go and you try to learn from those who know more. Hence, for Paul and for all Christians, the only arrogance surrounding the language of imitation would be the arrogance of those so formed by the ethos of individualism that they think they can walk the path of discipleship without observing, learning from, and imitating those who are already farther down the path. Listen to this. The only arrogance surrounding the language of imitation would be the arrogance of those so formed by the ethos of individualism, that's our society, that they think they can walk the path of discipleship without observing learning and imitating those who are already farther down the path. Hmm. Arrogance, you think, that you don't need godly, faithful examples in your life. So Paul says, join. Join in imitating me. That's a very unique word that Paul is using here. He is many times call people to imitate him, but that's the only time in the scripture where he has this join, soon, and then he has the word to mimic, soon, together. Mimic, all of you together. So his calling here is for the whole church to be together in imitating him and other godly leaders. One scholar, Peter O'Brien, he translated as, imitate me with one accord. And it's beautiful because now 
Paul is painting the imitation as a community project. You don't choose whoever you want to imitate. As a part of one body, you all must be imitating those people who best represent the convictions of this body. The godly Christians. Join together. Join together as one body imitating these godly people. That's what Paul is telling them here. And then he says, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Keep your eyes. Escopel. He has been using this word. A word that refers to the exercise of effort in watching for something. He had used earlier in chapter 2, verse 4, we saw that, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And you remember, to look at the interest of others requires effort, intention. And that's what Paul is saying here. Keep your eyes, keep watching. Sanctification requires effort. And it's, I think it's evident for all of us that to imitate godly people requires effort. It doesn't require any effort to imitate ungodly people. And for those of us who have kids, we know that very well. We strive so hard to set an example, and they spend five minutes with bad examples, and they come home doing those same things like that. So, it's important for us to remember, it requires effort of keeping my eyes, watching those who are more mature, those who are godly. So, my question for all of you is, what have you been watching? And who have you been watching? What have you been using your eyes for? The beautiful eyes that God has given you. What have you been using for? If we were to, to search your internet browse history, what would we see there? What have you been placing before your eyes? Who have you been watching? Are you watching those who leave on you the mark of discipleship? of Christian thinking, or you're just wasting your time looking at foolishness and sinful things. So he says, brothers, join imitating me and keep your eyes on those, look at the plural, on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And we all need multiple heroes to be looking at, right? Nobody's perfect in one area. In their whole life, some masters more in one area than others. So we need a group of men and women that we are looking at and trying to imitate, follow after. And it's beautiful because Paul is not embarrassed to say that. Just imitate us. And every Christian leader, the leaders of the church, they must be men who say that to the church. Imitate us. Mimic us. 1 Peter 5.3, Peter tells the church that the elders must be an example to the flock. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and in your teaching, doctrine and life. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your listeners. 
So may this church here always have leaders who love the cross, love Christ so much that they can and must say, follow me, imitate me. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk. Look at the verb walk. Walk. Peripatel, a lifestyle. That means a lifestyle. Conduct. According to the example that you have in us. What example is that? Paul just gave the example in the preceding verses. The mind of Christ. Counting others. More significant than yourselves. Look into the interests of others. That's what Paul is saying. The example in us. Him. Timothy. Epaphroditus. The other leaders in the church. And of course, Jesus above all. But that's the man who walk according to the example that you have in us. So, the way you speak, the way you dress yourself, the way you behave in front of a computer... The things you post on your social media, how you spend your money, how you use your time, all must be analyzed, scrutinized by looking at more godly examples. Amen? You don't, you don't get the, the immature ones you say as your example. It's always a high standard. Be perfect, be holy as whom? As Johnny is, no, as I am, the Lord says. He sets the, the standard high. And the same with us. We need to be looking at, find the, the most godly, the holiest, those who revere Christ the most, those who fear the Lord the most, those who love the cross the most, and imitate them. Those are the friends of the cross. And we need to be keeping our eyes on them. We need to be walking close and very close to them. And Paul explains why. Look at verse 18. For, here's the explanation, for many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Keep your eyes, keep walking very close behind the friends, the lovers of the cross. Let me tell you why. Because their enemies try to entice you and conquer you who do not walk after the example that Christ gave us, but after the example of Satan himself. So Paul reminds us that there is a war going on. For many of whom I have often told you, and now even with tears, they walk, their lifestyle is of the enemies of the cross. And for Paul... Remember I told you, Paul divides human race in two groups. Those in Christ, those outside Christ. And the same thing here. Human race is divided in two groups. Lovers, friends of Christ, and foes, enemies of Christ. Friends of the cross, enemies of the cross. There is no middle ground. There is nobody that's in neutral. Neutrality. I just don't know what you think about the cross. That implies enmity towards the cross. Indifference is hate towards the cross. Remember what Brian read earlier here? 
They're just, you're either with Him or you're against Him. There is no middle ground where the person is just trying to decide something. No. And the cross stands as the center of the Christian faith and practice. The cross is the center of the Christian's belief and doing. The cross is the center of our theology, is the center of our life. To reject the cross is to reject the greatest display of God's power, wisdom, love, and mercy. And many hate the cross, maybe not with words. They, many profess to love the cross, but they show their hate through their lifestyles. Note that Paul is not ashamed of calling them for what they are. Enemies of the cross. Oh, Paul, you're, you're being too harsh. How can you call them enemies of the cross? That's so unloving. Remember the inability to have enemies. Sadly, so many Christians are embracing this idea. Paul is very clear. We have enemies. He's very clear with his words. And it's important for us to remember. That's a basic truth of Christianity, brothers and sisters. It's a basic truth of Christianity. We, once we join to Christ, once we are crucified with Christ, we have enemies. Before, we had God as our enemy. And now we have the kingdom of darkness as our enemy. It was Jesus Himself who said, You will be hated for My name's sake. He also said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. So we have enemies as Christians. We have enemies within our own family. Sometimes a sibling. Parents. Children who hate us. They hate us because of the cross. And don't you dare to pervert the cross in order to appease family members. To pervert the cross by pretending that's okay to live sinful lives. Now, God promises you will have enemies. They hate the cross. They're going to hate you. We have enemies within our own families, workplace, school, neighborhood, and sadly, even inside the professing church. And if you never experience any sort of hostility because of your love towards Christ, if you never experience any hate because of the cross of Christ, with all love and compassion, something is wrong with your friendship with the cross. And notice that Paul says, many, many. It's not a rare small group of people. No, many. Remember what Jesus said? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate's wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. Many. That's why Paul keeps warning 
the church, about these enemies. And that also brings a, a sense of sobriety to all of us, because so many people, I have talked to people, and they say, oh, if we just went back to the first century church, everything would be perfect. We just need to go back to the first century church. <laughs> as if they didn't have enemies. As if they didn't have issues. The letters of the New Testament is to correct misunderstanding sins that were happening in the church. So don't have this idyllic idea that, oh, the early church was perfect and we are all messed up. If you just go back to meeting at homes, just like the early church, everything's going to be okay. No. We need to go back to a biblical church. That's what we need to go back to. So the question that is raised here is, who are these enemies of the cross? Who are they? And you read the commentaries and you have pages of scholars trying to discern who they are. And we don't know. Were they the Jew Judaizers? Were they Jewish people who were trying to convert Christians into Judaism? Were they heathens who hated Christ? Were they Gnostic Christians? We have no idea. Paul gives very broad descriptions it's broad, the description that Paul gives. And I think it's on purpose. Because broad is the way that leads to destruction. So that's why he gives a broad picture of who they are. But if you're going to ask me, who do you think they are primarily? I think they are people who profess to be Christians. They profess to be friends of the cross. But actually, because of their lifestyle, they show themselves to be enemies of the cross. That's who I think. Similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So Paul gives three descriptions. And then he gives the destination. So we have three descriptions and the destination of these enemies of the cross. And if you read, look at verse 19. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. With mindset on earthly things. And you see that's the polar opposite. opposite. It's the complete opposite of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the example of Christ. That's the completely opposite of Christ Jesus, the description that he has here. And he calls them enemies of the cross. And we know that Paul mentioned the cross in chapter 2, when he was talking about Christ humbling himself. Becoming a slave and dying, even where? On a cross. So the cross so far in Philippians represents the apex, the climax of humility, of submitting to God, placing others above your own interests. So to be an enemy of the cross is to be against the humility that God requires and demands. To be an enemy of the cross is to reject the wisdom and power of God revealed at the cross. So first, Paul says that they, let me go back here. He says that their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. What does it mean? Their God is their belly. Uh, I believe that the belly here represents fleshly desires, carnal desires. Fallen desires. Physical appetites. We see that Paul uses the same expression in Romans 16, 
Look what Paul says. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but, they, but rather they serve their own koilia, their own bellies. So you see, Paul speaks to them as people who do whatever they want to do. It's people who are always enslaved to their own selfish desires. It's amazing how Paul places here, and you put these two verses together, and you see the divisive people in the church, they're actually enemies of the cross. Because the cross brings unity. Divisive people brings the completely opposite. They're enemies of the cross. The cross proclaims humility, unity. And when you're seeking just your own interest, satisfying your own belly, it's all about you. It's all about others. So, their God is their belly. Not the Lord Jesus, but their belly is their God. Describe a person who is a slave of his fallen desires. Think about their God, and think about the word God, Theos. What does the word God imply? And when you say to somebody, oh... Such and such thing is your God. Yeah, that's whom you serve. That's whom you belong to. That's who is your master. So whatever controls you beside the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified is actually a God, an idol in your life. So if we don't have lordship and control over, and you can name it, alcohol, the things you see in your phone, your computer, tobacco, social media, laziness, your health, gluttony, anger. If all these things control you, they are your God. You belong to them. They have mastery over you. Oh, that's the completely opposite of a life that loves the cross. That's a cross-shaped life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but who? Christ lives in me. So, and also we can apply that to our culture, our society. Look at our society. It's God is the belly. You do whatever it pleases you. Just do whatever satisfies you. Be happy. Second, Paul says that they glory in shame. Their glory is in their shame. Paul had described Christians in chapter 3, verse 3, I believe, that the true Christians, the true people of God, they glory in whom? In Christ Jesus. And now he says that these enemies of the cross, they don't glory in Christ. They glory in their shame, shameful things. Shame is deeply connected to sin. Why do we have shame? Because of sin. Shame is actually a tool. It's an instrument that God gives people to repent and come to Him. We run to Christ because He took our shame upon the cross. But these people here, they glory in their shame. And sadly, so many pastors, they glory in shameful things. So, so often you listen to a preacher and you, you say, what are you talking about? Their glory in shameful things. 
what they have acquired, the things they have done. And the same, so many Christians, they glory in shameful things. You, you look at their social media and all the pictures are they glorying in shameful things. And shameful things is anything that's not Christ and Him crucified. For all will glory nothing else but Jesus Christ. We have been seeing more and more Christians leaders, Christian leaders glorying in critical race theory. They boast. They glory that they're accepting all these satanic ideologies and bringing to the church. They glory in having a flag, Black Lives Matter, in their church. Satanic ideologies. They glory in shameful things. So many churches glory in their tolerance. We glory in being a tolerant church. We accept everyone. We don't judge anyone. Actually, you're judging the cross by saying that you don't judge anyone. Glory in acceptance of diversity. Glory in their wokeness. These people are enemies of the cross. Also, their minds are set on earthly things. That's an important word that Paul has been using through Philippians. The phronel, thinking, acting, feeling. It's a mindset that affects the whole person. And their phronel is earthly. For Paul, earthly is the opposite of heavenly. Where is Christ? In the heavens. To be earthly... It should be the opposite of to be a Christian, to be in union with Christ. To have an earthly mindset is to be in union with Adam, who is earthly. So in 1 Corinthians, I think I have here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 47, Paul says, The first man, referring to Adam, he was from the earth, earthly, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. So to have an earthly mindset is to be in union with Adam. A race that's cursed under sin, under the wrath of God. Paul goes on, he explains that in Colossians. And he used very similar words in Colossians chapter 3. He says, set your pronoun, your mindset, your thinking, your feeling, your acting on what is above, not not on what is on earth. And then Paul goes on to explain what the earthly mindset is. So he says, put to death. That's war language, brothers and sisters. Execute. Kill it. It's an enemy. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. In this you too once walked, look at the past tense, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, like a filthy garment. Remove that. That's Adamic garment. That's the garments of Adam. Remove that from you. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Remove these things from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its Creator. So notice the earthly mindset 
most of the sins connected to a nursery mindset are sins that affect the community of God's people. See, a nursery mindset is marked by sins that destroy the community, the unity that was bought with Jesus at the cross. It damages the unity of the community of the cross. So, we have enemies. It's very clear. We have enemies. If you are in Christ, if you love the cross, all that the cross represents, all that the cross proclaims, you have enemies. It's heartbreaking to see so many of those who once professed to be friends of the cross now as enemies of the cross. A great number of ministries that we once held very dear are now joining arms and marching together with the enemies of the cross. So I tell you, there are enemies outside the church. Our society hates the cross. Just look at what's going on, the, uh, what's taking place, the hate towards the church. And within the professing church, we have enemies also. The whole social justice movement has taken captive many who once professed to love the cross and now they hate the cross by what they are promoting. I have, seen, I have been seeing more and more popular Christian leaders endorsing Black Lives Matter, endorsing Jamar Tisby and his book The Caller of Compromise, endorsing books such as White Fragility, Critical race theory, intersectionality, they stand against the cross of Christ. They stand against the cross of Christ. The cross proclaims the sufficiency, the sufficiency of God in uniting His people together. And all these theories say that that's not enough. That's not enough. White people, you have to pay now. It's not enough, the cross. There is hate. I know that there is hate. And you see, people who once we held dear, people who once we were promoting, now embracing these satanic ideologies and promoting to the church, and they are actually enemies of the cross. They are not friends of the cross. And there is a war going on, and many Christians are numb. They are sleeping, not realizing what is taking place. And that's why Paul, you see Paul's heart here. Look at that. He says, For many of whom I have often told you, and now I tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. And that's why Paul is with tears in his eyes. He's weeping. And it's interesting because there is no object. Is he weeping in relation to the enemies of the cross? Or is he crying in relation to the church, I think it's the latter. I think he's weeping because of the church. And I think that because in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is giving his farewell to the church in Ephesus, he reminds them how he served them with tears. And then he says, And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. So there is this Deep affection in Paul's heart towards the church. He loves the church so much, he cannot even 
entertain the idea that people would start embracing satanic ideologies. So you can just picture Paul as he's dictating this letter to the church in Philippi that he loves so much. And there's tears and he's weeping as if he needs to take a break. Because he cannot even entertain the idea that that church would be overtaken by these enemies of the cross. He loves the church. He gives himself to the church. He cries for the church. He weeps for the church. He spends all his energy, time, effort serving those for whom Christ died. And how we need more men and women like that. That love the church. That pray for the church. That cry for the church. So zealous to protect the church of Christ. A lover, a friend of the cross, we always love the church because the church is the object of the cross. If a person proclaims to love Christ, proclaims to love the cross, but it has no zeal, love for the church, you know that something's completely messed up there. Because the whole purpose of the cross is to bring God's people into His dwelling place. So Paul also gives their end. And he says, their end is destruction. These people are not brothers and sisters. They are not immature brothers and sisters. They are not people who just need to grow a little bit more. They are enemies. And as enemies, they will be destroyed. Paul often used the word destruction instead of hell. It's a synonym for Paul. Destruction. And that does not mean annihilation, okay? That's very important because some more liberal people who deny the doctrine of eternal punishment, they say, oh, do you see destruction? It destroyed. Annihilated. Destruction doesn't mean annihilation. And the language of war is when a ship was destroyed, the ship was not annihilated. The ship would sink down, but was there. It meaning it ceased to function as it was functioning before. It's not working anymore as it worked before. That's the language of destruction that Paul uses here. And he says that their end, their telos, of all those who stand against the cross of Christ is what? Eternal bliss. Destruction. That's the promise of God. I will, I am destroying, I have destroyed, I am destroying, and now will destroy my enemies. And that's a very comforting truth. Oftentimes people get embarrassed, ashamed of the wrath and the holiness and the righteousness of God in judging. As if God needs some, a sinner to defend Him. God has promised that He will destroy it. And, and He has given the first fruits. The guarantee, the future destruction is the cross. Where Paul says that at the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them through the cross. Colossians chapter 2.15 And that's why the Bible prohibits, prohibits human vengeance, carnal vengeance. 
Paul says, Beloved, never, never, not sometimes, it's okay, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That tells us how we are to fight against our enemies, right? I hope so. When we are attacked, when our enemies rise against us, the enemies of the cross, inside, outside the church, we do not fight back with fleshly weapons. Our sword is not assault rifles, shotguns, semi-automatics. Amen? That's not the Christian weapon to fight. Did Christ give that to the church? Did Christ give to the church assault rifles, semi-automatics, and said, here's how you guys are going to fight. Our sword is what? Yes, the Word of God. We fight back persecution, affliction, and oppression with prayer, with singing, with gathering together, celebrating the Lord's Supper, celebrating baptism, suffering, dying. That's how we conquer, just like Jesus conquered. We destroy our enemies with cross-centered arguments. That's what Paul says. We do not use fleshly weapons, but arguments that destroy strongholds. Arguments that are cross-centered. That's how the church fights. It was interesting this week, I was listening to an interview of James Coates, the, the pastor in Canada. Most of you know what's taking place. And this week, the government of Canada came and fenced his church. They hate his church, so they fenced the church. And he was giving an interview to a group of men, and here's how eschatology is important, because this group of men, they believe that the kingdom of God will take over society, and we need to take over society, and, and we'll prosper, and, and, and the Christendom, society will become Christianized. So he asked Pastor Coates, why are you here talking to us and you don't have a group of people there at the church building destroying those fences? That's almost, sadly, American Christians think. We think about earthly weapons. And he said, we don't fight like that. We don't fight like that. We have different weapons. Our weapons worship. That's so hard for some of you to swallow that. I know. I know. And Paul explains what destruction means. Look at that. Second Thessalonians 1, he explains what this destruction actually is. He says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us, 
when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance. Remember Romans 12, 19? Vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And look at that. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Then he explains, away from the presence, away from the face of the Lord and from the glory of His might. And let me remind you that God is omnipresent. So hell, He is there in hell. It's not like people think, oh, hell, God's not in hell. Hell is the absence of God. God is there. It's the manifestation of His wrath. He must be. He is in hell. When it says, away from His face, away from His presence, you need to understand what the presence of the Lord means. In the presence of the Lord there is what? Fullness of joy. In the presence of the Lord there is what? Shalom. There is grace. There is mercy. The church is the presence of God here. And people enjoy, for now people enjoy some of these benefits of God's presence. But eternal destruction means eternally away from any sort of grace and mercy and blessing. The cross stands as the only means for sinners to come into the presence of God. The cross reminds us that the curtains were torn apart. And the face of God, oh, the Lord bless you and keep you, make His face shine upon you. And that's what the cross does. The cross opens up and God's people now can see God's face shining and smiling upon us. But people who hate the cross, they're saying, we hate the only means to receive this blessing of His presence. And what does God do? Retribution. Oh, you hate the cross, the only means to be in my presence and be blessed and have shalom, have peace, joy. Alright, that's what you're going to have for all eternity. And that's what He gives them. The enemies of the cross receive a righteous retribution. They are against the only means of coming to the presence of God and that's what they receive. Eternal distance away from any sort of blessing. Because right now, people who hate the cross, they can go outside, enjoy the sunshine, have a milkshake, right? Eat a delicious pizza, have fun. But eternal destruction means eternally away from all sort of this type of blessings and actually the opposite. Eternally under His wrath. So, run to the cross. Embrace the cross. Treasure the cross. Love the cross. Take up your cross that resembles His cross. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For it was on that old cross Jesus suffered and died to pardon and sanctify me. So we have enemies. Wake up. We have enemies. It's sad to see the state of the church in America. It's sleeping. 
being taken over. And at the same time, we rejoice that the Lord is waking us up to the reality that there is a spiritual warfare. Wake up. We must take up the full armor. Brothers and sisters, in the morning when I get up and I go spend my time in prayer and I pray for you, oftentimes I go through Ephesians 6 and I'm praying for each one of the members and say, please, Lord, please help Jeff, help Tracy to take up the full armor. Help them to put the, the, the helmet of salvation this morning. We are in a war. And we fight back preaching the cross. Showing the power of the cross through a cruciform life. We fight our enemies with cross-shaped and cross-rooted arguments that destroy strongholds. That's why they get so angry. The body they may kill. Remember Luther? And that's exactly what they're going to do. His truth abides still. And we fight with cross-shaped, cross-rooted arguments. We fight back with lives willing to be crucified like our Savior. So when we battle as cross-shaped soldiers, the victory is ours. Because we're just imitating the one who conquered them through the cross. Lord, we thank You for this wonderful morning together. Thank for Your Word. Thank for waking us up. Thank You for reminding us that though the victory is ours, we still have battles to fight. We have an enemy who knows that his time is short. He's angry. He's filled with cruel hate. So we pray they would help us. Help us to stand firm. Put on the full armor. Fight with the weapons you have given us. Help us to be grounded in the cross of Christ. We can have cross-rooted arguments, proclaiming the cross, declaring the cross, never ashamed of the cross. Thank You for conquering us in Jesus. Thank You for making us friends and lovers of the cross, we who once were enemies of the cross. And Lord, there are people here who are in enmity against the cross of Christ. I pray that You'd rescue them. Kill them with Your sword and make them alive in You. And help us as a church, Lord, to stand strong in You. There are enemies. We live in an evil day and we need Your help. We know that the final... The final battle is ours, but until that day we keep fighting, so we need your help. So please help us. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.